This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads, and it's completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. On the 31st of August, 1997, Diana Spencer, a former schoolteacher and mother of two young boys, was tragically killed in a car accident in Paris. The circumstances surrounding her death, her young age, and the fact her two small boys would be left without a mother were all aggravating factors that exacerbated the tragedy. We are today a nation in Britain in a state of shock, in mourning, in grief that is so deeply painful for us. It is not easy to express a sense of loss. So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. In the days and weeks that followed, millions of people from around Britain skipped school, missed work, and traveled to London to lay flowers at her memorial, to stand outside Buckingham Palace, or to watch from afar as her funeral took place in a packed Westminster Abbey. Even in faraway New York, 14,000 people gathered for a memorial service in Central Park. While the public outpouring of grief inspired television networks from around the world to air the funeral live, to an estimated audience of over two billion people, or roughly a third of the entire world's population. But why was her death so impactful to literally billions of people who'd never met her? In this episode, I discuss the death of Lady Diana with Professor Margaret Schwartz of Fordham University. Margaret, when you were a guest last year, we talked about the funeral of Ava Perron and subsequent, you know, all the drama with people claiming possession of her body and so forth in Argentina and how that was such a significant event. Ava Perón, though, was a political figure, somebody who was seen as one of the people who had risen to this great level. Lady Diana, on the other hand, wasn't a political figure. I mean, by definition in the royal family, she had to be apolitical. She wasn't a war hero. She wasn't a great inventor. She was a woman who was a school teacher. She married Prince Charles. She did a lot of great humanitarian work. But she wasn't somebody that the average person on the street knew. So how is it, circumstantially, that so many people came to strongly identify with her? Part of the early history of 20th century communication media has to do with acculturating people to having the voices and then later the 
bodies or the images of strangers in their homes. This is not something that that humans do normally, or it certainly was not um, the case in pre-radio age. Maybe you would go see someone physically, right? Like there were people present when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. The text of it was printed in the newspaper or whatever, but you wouldn't have been able to see that person. So a lot of the early history media that theorizes the parasocial relationship has to do with building that reflex in people. And actually, there's a really interesting early example from the UK when the king, right? I think this is the process that's in the king's speech where he would begin to give these radio addresses. When this first started, people in their living rooms listening on the radio were confused about protocol. Should they stand? Should they remove their hats? Should some sort of deference be paid to this disembodied voice? To what extent were they in the presence of this distant person who is a person of authority. So there's a history of that where then people eventually get used to that. That would be funny to us if I'm watching the State of the Union address on television. I'm not confused about whether it's okay for me to be in my pajamas eating popcorn or whatever. That developed over the course of the 20th century. Another great example of parasocial relationships are the relationships between the newscaster and the camera. They would read it off of a sheaf of papers that they had in their hands or on the desk. And they found that the ratings improved when they were looking at the camera. And that's how the teleprompter was invented to kind of, again, foster that relationship that Dan Rather, whoever it is that's reading your news to you at night, is a person with whom you have an intimate relationship and you can trust. And they found that that psychological element was just as important as getting the information, right? Like you wouldn't think as far as what the actual words they're saying, that there's any difference or any importance, but it matters if it feels like the person's looking at you. So those are kind of two important moments in the development of parasocial relationships. More broadly, the term relates to the ways in which mediation, technological communication media, creates the ability to feel a a personal connection to a person whom you've never met, a famous person. It's a one-sided relationship. It's a relationship where you might send that person fan mail, but you wouldn't necessarily expect to get an answer back. You might feel familiar with that person, but that person wouldn't be familiar with me. My mother actually has a really funny story of running into some news guy in Manhattan when she was a young woman. And she said, oh, hello, so-and-so, like called them by their first name and then caught herself. That wasn't someone that she was friends with. If you saw the recent movie Priscilla, I think that's a really interesting depiction of the fantasy of parasocial relationship, that out of that vast anonymous mass, you would somehow be plucked as the special friend, the special relationship. So there's a cultivating of that on the audience side. And there is on the side of the public figure, a sort of vocabulary, a changing and evolving vocabulary that is the means to cultivate the illusion of that intimacy, right? And that's why I give the example of the newscaster, right? If you are not a public figure that knows how to connect to your public, especially these days, you're going to suffer. There are gestures of intimacy. Taylor Swift is a mastermind at this. Ways that you foster the illusion of that being an authentic relationship and a real intimacy. And it allows for this essentially psychological phenomenon, which is that folks feel, and Diana's the example we're talking about, this incredible intimacy. They feel that they know her They feel that they have some kind of relationship with her. They feel that they care about her welfare, that it matters to them what happens to her, like all of that stuff 
that you would feel about someone in your life. You feel about a public figure. And of course, the world we're living in now, as opposed to the world of 1997 or 1987 and the height of Diana's fame, has only expanded with regard to this kind of fan culture and opportunities to connect and ways in which public figures are called upon in various complicated ways to nurture those relationships. But she was one of the first, and this had to do with certain things that she did that I think were innovative at the time. Building on from what you're talking about and celebrities coming into our home, there have been a lot of significant figures that have died roughly the same time as Diana and many, many since. But few of them seem to have generated the level of emotion at their passing as she did. So that connection that evidently she had with the public, was that just something that was purely circumstantial because she wasn't of royal blood so people could maybe identify with her and thought, oh, this is, you know, like a Disney princess story. Or was it something that she herself tried to develop as part of her public persona? That's a really good question. A lot of the standard narratives, like if you read a lot of the Diana biographies, the dominant story is that she's the author of those techniques, that the British royal family at that time did not have a sophisticated PR machine. And so that some of these things were happenstance that she then learned to capitalize on. And so I'm not sure when you say designed, I think in this moment, part of what makes it interesting is that there's a certain synergy between circumstance and her own savvy or her own impulses. But I'm reminded of there's an anecdote in one of these biographies where Early on, when she was still sort of dating Charles, and she was working still as a kindergarten teacher, and there's a photograph of her standing in a skirt, and the light is coming from behind her. It's a sort of midi skirt, and the light shines through, and you can see the outline of her legs. And it's like a little bit scandalous, a little bit sexy, but you can't like see her underwear or anything. It's So it's also a little bit relatable. It's like, oh, you know, look how down to earth she is. She didn't really expect to be photographed. She didn't know the light was behind her. And there's this moment of vulnerability that is a little bit sexual, a little bit titillating, but also wholesome and relatable. I think it's like there's a bunch of moments like that, that she becomes increasingly savvy at sort of manipulating. But I think obviously, yeah, she's like a blonde white woman. She comes from a really old, appropriate family. My understanding from reading the biographical information that your listeners may be more or less familiar with is that she was selected because she came from a very old family and she was young and she was a virgin. All of that stuff was like definitely part of the story at the time. Yeah, she was a very slim, beautiful, statuesque woman who had the sort of body type that was definitely attractive at that time, right? She wasn't super curvy. She had those tall, long legs, which are big in the 80s. Obviously, I'm not from the UK. So, you know, the sort of different cultural, but like that sort of English rose, like that sort of blonde, flush complexion, clear skins thing. Like she seemed the archetype of what a British princess would be here, an English princess would be. Margaret, I was in England when Lady Diana passed away. And obviously, it was a shock. It was a terrible tragedy, you know, the two young boys, especially without their mother. But the thing that surprised me at the time was the level to which her death seemed to impact so many people on an emotional level. For example, one of my close friends had an uncle who had very recently passed away. And I remember talking to him and his family. They were, you know, sad. He was a good guy by all accounts. But they weren't able to go to his funeral because of work and school and other commitments. And that's a fairly typical thing. We all have neighbors, colleagues, old school teachers, old friends that we haven't really kept in touch with who we hear of passing away. 
And just because of the other things going on in our life, we might say a prayer, we might send a card, but generally we only go to the funerals or memorials for our closest friends and families. But the family that I just mentioned, just a couple of weeks after not being able to prioritize the uncle's funeral, all missed school, all missed work to go up to London and stood for hours in line for the opportunity to lay a wreath for a woman who they'd never met. And they were far from being alone because we saw the same thing all over the world. So I'm curious, having read your book, Dead Matter, and the discussion of significant figures in history, Lenin, Ava Peron, and so on, who passed away, and how their corpses and their death can forge a greater meaning in society. What was it about Lady Diana that so many people who, as I said, never met her, felt that they had this closeness of a relationship with her, or she had such a value in their lives, that it was an absolute priority to go and pay tribute to her. This is where the kind of theory that I talk about in my book, Dead Matter, goes into all this, because at the time of Diana's death, so like end of the 20th century, We're living in a society where untimely death of young, beautiful people is not something that happens very often, right? We don't have a cultural script for that in the way that we might have in the 19th century when someone dies of typhus or whatever. And death is really not something that we have a lot of cultural tools to cope with in our own intimate lives. Religion, organized religion is on the wane. People don't have ritual that goes with this. And so in many people's private lives, if they had lost a family member, they might have found themselves not necessarily at a loss, but on the one hand, without a lot of guidance to deal with that from a ritual perspective. Although there is anthropological work on like sort of atheist funerals or non-believing funerals in the UK particularly, but also with that sort of late capitalist push to like kind of get on with it a little bit. However, the celebrity death, and in this case, the death of Diana, comes at a moment where there's a whole media script for that. There's the memorialization, there's the montages of her over the years, there's the commentary, there's the televised funeral, like, and that vocabulary is familiar to people. It is an appropriate outpouring of grief. You can go on and on as long as the TV cycle goes on. And the TV cycle went on for a long time because this is IP that is still being milked to this day, right? The actress that played Diana on The Crown just won a Golden Globe for her performance by embodying that intellectual property, essentially, so that that grief is socially sanctioned, it's socially scripted, and it's something that people are more comfortable with. That's what I argue in the book. And that's what I would argue in this case, I think, especially because it comes at that really precise moment of the centuries kind of wearing down, she's becoming a more complicated figure, right? She's just on the cusp of maybe she's going to remarry, or maybe she's going to have a whole life, or God forbid, she's going to get old, right? Like she sort of gets frozen in time in this way that she is endlessly creating value via these sort of parasocial mediated circuits. And that is something that late capitalism is totally on board with, (laughs) totally sanctioned. It's almost like, a. I mean, and I'm not a psychologist, although a lot of what we're talking about is social psychology, right? People put all of those feelings that they might not have known how to deal with in other parts of their lives, and they put them there because that's a socially sanctioned place for them to put it. 
I think that's a really interesting point about Diana to consider if she had survived and been able to age and become a grandmother and so on like everybody else, would she have retained the level of iconic status in the society that she had? And I wonder about that with a lot of celebrities and public figures. It's, you know, to quote the Batman films, you know, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become a villain in some capacity. Well, and there's a theoretical point to be made about photography and indexical media. That that's also, that's a very modern thing because there is just so much footage and images of her that can be sort of endlessly recycled, right? And one of the things that I actually haven't watched the most recent season of The Crown one of the things that it does is recreate footage that we've already seen in real life of her, you know, in the car with Dodie or of her on a yacht with Dodie, right? All of these things that were very iconic photographic images of Diana are then remediated through the crown. There's just endless fodder. And that's because of the sort of technical ability, you know, to have this kind of backlog of images, which you wouldn't have had in a sort of pre-modern public figure mm -hmm. in that way. Picking up on that point then, whilst her funeral was this huge event attended by so many people, given the relationship is one based upon iconography in a sense, and the public image of Diana, does the relationship with the public change or come to an end once Diana passes away? Or because it's based around this image and iconography, in a sense, it doesn't make much of a difference whether she's still alive or not. People associate her with this image rather than an actual intimate personal relationship with her, which obviously would come to an end, quite literally, when somebody passes away. Well, I mean, I think this is another way in which that displacement happens. It's like you're actually not missing that person in your everyday routine. Or are you? I guess you miss them in the tabloids or you miss following their gossip. It's not an absence. In some ways, it's a hyperabundance of images of grief or images of loss or images that point to grief and loss. I write in the chapter, which is also about Michael Jackson, interestingly, that the narrative around the funeral very much sort of set in place the way she would be remembered going forward as this martyr to fame, you know, that she was killed by the press, that that her beauty and her publicity are only the surface story. And it's her ability to connect with other people's suffering because her own suffering was real, that that becomes the story of who she was and not any number of other things the the also the sort of pledge to raise the boys the way she would have wanted and let their hearts sing, I think is what the Earl of Spencer says, the sort of critique of the monarch, all of that stuff continues on in the narrative of the royal family to this day. I have another article about Diana where I write about the trip that William and Catherine took to New Zealand early on after the first kid had been born, which I think is George. And so Diana and Charles had also gone to New Zealand and William had been born, but you never saw him. And this time, every time they got out of the plane, Kate's holding him. Their hands on parents. The baby charms the crowd like the baby is part of their PR move. And all of that references back to what becomes in the public imagination Diana's critique of the monarchy, that they were too stuffy, that they didn't encourage her to love her children or hold her children or give them normal lives, and that this was something she really, really wanted. So this idea of a martyr who was intimately connected with people's suffering and who wanted certain things for her children, that carries on through time very compellingly because even if you're not necessarily consuming Diana stuff, which again, 
there's so much Diana stuff you could be consuming, right? Even in the past 10 years, even in the past year. And when was that movie with Kristen Stewart? There's all this Diana stuff. So even if you're not consuming it, anytime you're consuming the Royals, and I would assume, although I don't know, that most of the people who felt this loss really intimately are Royalists. They're not criticizers of the Royal family. Or maybe people who weren't inclined to be supportive of the entire Royal family would have felt more kindly towards her because she was the people's princess. Every time you're consuming any of that media or consuming the Royal family, family in general, there's a way in which it all references back to her. You know, I can't speak to what people individually feel, but it seems like it's this site of melancholy and mourning that is sanctioned because it's continually profitable from a financial perspective. These are the people watching the crown. These are the people buying the memorial plates. These are the people who buy fake sapphire rings that look like the Diana's ring because they want to, there's something about her that they have come to believe is special and morally important that they then are carrying forth, but the structure of feeling of it is of grief on her behalf. This right. sense of her as a martyr to fame and that what she wanted was for her children to have a normal life and for AIDS patients and landmine survivors to have a powerful ally in the public sphere. I think the Earl of Spencer at some point says like her genuine suffering of which her bulimia was only the most obvious symptom or something like that. The work she had done in life to sort of confess her stuff, which was very, very unusual for someone in her position and much more what you would expect from like a pop star or maybe a movie star at the time that becomes solidified into this ongoing machine of profit in which people can feel, first of all, comfortable expressing grief in a sanctioned space. And second of all, they can feel morally like they're participating in something that's morally important. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned profit there. And to me, there seems something distasteful about the fact that Diana died ostensibly because she was being harassed by the media. And now the same media companies with television shows and so on are profiting from the death that through paparazzi photographers, they were complicit in, in a sense. But in terms of the public, though, Obviously, these media companies and newspapers selling salacious stories and so forth, they're creating this stuff because they know there's a demand for it. And they know the public wants to read about Diana and they want to hear about Diana and watch dramas about Diana. So in a sense, are we all complicit in this or can we somehow separate ourselves from the media feeding us this stuff and say, well, they're the bad guys, they harassed her, they made money off it. We're just looking at this because we had a personal concern for her and we loved her. I guess what's more interesting to me is how it's set up, like where you want to identify. And both stories are available to people. Every time that Harry comes out and complains about how they were treated by the press, and every time he sues, I think what he sued the Daily Mirror, he's invoking that moral outrage against the press. And people either feel perhaps shamed into that and so feel sympathetic out of guilt, or they feel sympathetic because they're invested in this narrative of the sort of martyrdom to fame. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say less people feel guilty than feel moral outrage because people right. just are not really all that good about implicating themselves. 
I think even non-scholarly, you know, what I'm a media scholar, right? But I think even the average media consumer kind of knows that shit is being crammed down their throat, right? Like they kind of know that there's a lot of BS going on. If the sun wasn't selling newspapers, they'd find some other way to do it, that it's not necessarily just a pure matter of supply and demand. I think the narrative that gets mobilized by both the children of Diana, but also to some extent by Meghan Markle herself has been drawing upon that sense of outrage that people want to participate in that that seems to make them feel protective and good and righteous. Because the the ongoing popularity of that couple when they have absolutely nothing going on floors me. (laughs) Like a little it's like you're not even a prince anymore. You mentioned Meghan and Harry, and that's something else I wanted to ask you about. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding them with allegations against members of the royal family or members of the royal court for racism. And like Diana, in different circumstances, they have become detached, in a sense, from the royal family. Her, you know, it's through divorce. Them, it was through their choice. Do you think the spectre of Diana and her passing impacts the manner in which the media cover Harry and Meghan? I think enormously. And I think I think what's interesting about that is that uh, like because I, I wrote both these articles before Meghan Markle was in the picture. And so the obvious choice would be to look at William and Kate. They're kind of boring, right? Like she's the one that's got Diana's sapphire ring. And I did write some stuff. For example, their engagement portrait is very consciously almost the twin image of Diana and Charles's down to the posing and the clothing and stuff. So I think there was an early attempt to sort of make her into the reincarnation. She follows the rules too much and she's not really that much of a victim. And Meghan Markle suits that completely to a T, right? That Harry went out, married for love, a woman who was unconventional, both sort of in her manner, but also like, you know, what could be more shocking for a a eugenicist project like the royal family than to have colonial blood in there has children with her, and then turns around and does what he's absolutely not supposed to do, but which is the sort of right thing to do from the moral perspective, which is to call them out on it. And so she becomes the figure that seems to inhabit that kind of precarity, that kind of where a lot of strong opinion gets attached. I didn't watch the Oprah interview. I'm not super up on everything that goes on with them, but it does seem like it is he who is almost constantly invoking the danger that she could face at the hands of the press. So this is that he's, you know, that he's suing these tabloids, that he's talking about his security detail when he goes home that he's talking about where they can live and the safety of their children. You know, he doesn't even have to say my mother died, right? He doesn't have to say it, but he implies it all the time. And so, I mean, she hasn't quite come into her own yet if she wants to go full Diana, but she certainly occupies that position in the sense that he's seen as someone who carries a grief and that he publicly performs that grief via sort of concern for her safety in ways that I think garner him a lot of public support. So it's now 30 years since Diana passed away, but through television shows like The Crown, obviously her memory is being kept alive. But in media terms, does that now mean that we have a new generation of young people who weren't alive at the time Diana died, but who through the media coverage and dramas and so forth have now become enmeshed in the story themselves? Now we have a second generation of people who have an attachment with this woman that's even more distant because it predates their time. I've got to think that there must be. I mean, I have a 15-year-old daughter. I don't 
if I had her right here, I wonder, you know, what she would say if I was like, what do you think of Diana? She would probably tell me what she thinks of Kristen Stewart playing Diana is my guess. It would be interesting to see how that's different, that the story itself is over. And so all we can do is compulsively retell it in different formats. People are going to see these movies, people are watching these shows, but does it garner that same sense of identification and grief? You know, I was born in 1975. I didn't become really aware of John Lennon until after he had died. With some of the earliest records that were put on CD were the Beatles records. And so consuming the Beatles in the 80s and 90s, I remember feeling really sad that John Lennon was dead. And I remember feeling very interested in his story and who he had been. Is that the same as the feeling that people feel when they're attached to someone like Diana in real time? I would say it's probably less of a parasocial relationship and more of almost like a cultural script, right? Or an icon or a legend. But there are young people who are into the Beatles and there's got to be young people who are into Diana. And they certainly have a ton of stuff that they can consume to do that. The thing I wanted to talk about in the book was that you don't see her corpse. You don't see images right. of her dead. That's less important now, in a sense, because we're sort of past the actual event of the death. I got to say, I'm feeling pretty vindicated <laughs> because I was rereading it. And I was, you know, this allows her to go on as if she was never dead. Friedrich Kittler, who's this German media scholar, he says, the realm of the dead is as extensive as the storage and transmission capacities of any culture, meaning our ability to capture images and circulate them is in many senses a graveyard. We listen to Beatles songs and watch Marilyn Monroe movies and James Dean and Keith Ledger write all of this dead stuff. And now in the age of AI and deepfakes, that stuff has even more potential to be reanimated. And so I said, writing from the perspective of 2015, I was like, by omitting the actual image of death from the story of death, it allows the mind to skip over that part and let her just sort of live on in images. That is exactly what's been going on. Margaret, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who missed it, you can check the back catalogue for an episode about Ava Perón also known commonly as Evita, as in the musical that Margaret featured in before. It was one of the most popular episodes of last year. And in the next episode, I cover a much less well-known, but equally interesting story about some people in Ghana who hundreds of years ago were literally driven from the land and forced somehow to build a society on the water. And yet having survived the ravages of war, slavery and colonialism now in this modern era climate change and tourism pose a real threat to their society <laughs>